You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Tim. Hey, Bob. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How's your New Year going? Um, good so far. Um, I'm, uh, I've got a little co-working office with some other sub-stackers here, so um, it's fun to oh, have, cool. kind, of, kind of have some, some co-workers. Oh, cool. Is that like a WeWorks or what? Yeah, it's a former WeWorks. Um, mm. The WeWork, uh, you know, WeWork imploded. So this one, I guess they got out of their lease, but the the landlord turned it into like independent WeWork. So yeah, it's um, cool. So you doing it's sub, you doing a lot of Substack bonding? A lot of there's a yeah, it's Matt, Matt Iglesias has sort of organized it. Um, so I get to talk to him. Oh, you're and, there in DC. Uh, is Matt, Matt yeah. is there? Yep. In, wow. Yeah. Tell him I said hello. I will do that. Um. So uh, let me introduce us. Uh, I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're Tim Lee, publisher of the Understanding AI Newsletter. And in a way, this is the Understanding AI Podcast as well, because we've been having these monthly conversations. It's something we're kind of experimenting with to, to see if that makes sense as a rhythm for a podcast about AI. I, I think that there is there may be value in looking back at the last month and making sure uh, the big stuff gets gets covered in a kind of one-stop shopping way um in any event the, the podcast is posted on your newsletter uh your subsect site uh, as yep. well as as uh on mine and being in my feed and so on so um what uh so we one interesting dynamic that's emerging between us i think is that i'm more worried about ai than you are mm -hmm. and this of course may just be a dispositional thing uh but that doesn't mean that that one of us won't turn out to be right. So it's worth, yeah. it's, it's worth we're talking about. I'm a little bit of a worrier. And you are, are you, do you kind of come out of a libertarian background, a little yeah. more hands off? So, so not worrying is part of your ideological identity, right? Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, worry would, about I, regulation. I mean, you worry about regulation, but aside from that, yeah. no worries. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm less libertarian than I, you know, was when I was younger. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, no regulation is is often my my default uh view and i also think temperamentally um i don't know i just have a pretty chill like you know per, per temperament so yeah um you know and, and, and like i think that uh generally speaking like i'm in, on the kind of steven pinker bandwagon of like life has been getting better over the, the decades and centuries and so mm -hmm. um most of the time like technology works out better for people so i'm not like dogmatic about it as certainly as possible i mean there, there have been technologies that have made things worse but um yeah my default assumption is probably things will, will work out okay so maybe we can actually start out pursuing this theme of kind of how fast things are moving how, you know what clues have emerged over the last month as to how fast things are moving and whether or not we should be worried there are other topics we're going to get around to including certainly the new york times uh copyright lawsuit uh against open ai and microsoft which you've written about in your newsletter and some other stuff, an update on kind of Altman, open AI, a little, we, there's more to say about that. Uh, and actually that feeds into this discussion about how fast things are moving, because I would say the first reason to think they're moving fast is that uh, the accelerationists seem to have won that battle at open AI. And I, I wanna talk later about the kind of paradox of Sam Altman being a kind of de facto accelerationist uh, in terms of how he's running open AI, even though 
he, I think, genuinely professes to be very worried about about uh, AI risk. I want to I want to get into that down the road. But um, there's that uh, that reason to think, uh, you know, that uh, things are, are going to keep moving uh, fairly fast. Um, I won't get into the various parts of OpenAI's business model that I think, you know, keep keep things moving rapidly. The, the APIs and, and the, the release of these uh, do-it-yourself bots and so on. Um, the, uh, the, I guess in terms of things that have come to my attention over the last month, I would also say it's really clear that open source is happening in a big way. We knew there was open source AI already. We knew Meta was going all in on open source. So that's going to be the place you're most likely to see big so-called frontier models that are open source. There's also, I guess, this company Mistral. Is that that's in France or somewhere in the Middle East or both or something, that, mm-hmm. it, which has pretty impressive uh, open source models. But what you're hearing more and more is people going, whoa, so I can put the equivalent of chat GPT 3.5 from Meta, the, the Llama 2, on my computer. It doesn't even need an internet connection. The whole thing is on my computer. And, you know, I can even get something slightly less powerful on my phone. You know, it's so you're seeing this and a lot is is happening on that uh, front, I would say. Um, there's there's also another thing that um, you actually brought to my attention was uh, via this podcast, uh, Cognitive Revolution uh, podcast with Nathan. Is his last name LeBenz or? Yeah. Right, um, which I which I've been listening to for some time, but I had missed this one podcast uh, about this thing Mamba, uh, which I would argue is about as threatening as it sounds. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but it, mm-hmm. it is it is uh, it could be a big source of acceleration. Nathan is certainly you know pretty worked up about it, uh, not necessarily in a negative way, but he thinks it's big. And what it is is. Uh, a strong hint that transformers, which are the foundation of current large language models, these things that became a big deal around 2017 via this big paper about attention and so on, they're not the last word. And we may have, in some ways, a fundamentally different approach over the horizon that could be much, much more powerful than these transformers. That's the upshot of the Mamba thing. We can can maybe get into that a little uh, later because it's, I'd like to get your take on on what you think is new about it. But the point is, you know, he's a very credible voice. I think Nathan LeBenz. Yeah, he he thinks it's a super big deal. I don't have the technical competence to assess the argument, but I certainly wouldn't dismiss it. Then finally, on my on my list of things over the past month that have led me to think, well, this this thing sure ain't slowing down. Was uh, you know, and this is um. Uh, this is actually another good person to follow. In addition to to Nathan's stuff, I would say is uh, Ethan Mollick on Twitter. He, he doesn't have a podcast or newsletter, I think. But I saw a tweet of his referring to, um, it was a paper called Self-Play Fine-Tuning Converts Weak Language Models to Strong Language Models. His tweet was, this is more evidence that AIs are not going to be limited by the amount of human-created content available for them to train on. This is another paper suggesting that AIs training on AI-created data can achieve higher quality results 
than just using human dated, uh, human created data alone. It's funny. I, I looked at the paper and I'd say there's something else that at least seems kind of notable about it, about, uh, uh, about, uh, this paper, which is that, uh, they, they basically take a model and play it against itself. You know, the famous case of that is AlphaGo, right? Where, where it became the, the, the greatest Go player in the known universe by playing against itself and improving as it played. Well, this is that same dynamic where you don't have to feed it any new human-generated text, but it plays this game against itself and gets better and better in a way that I think I dimly understand but don't need to get into. So uh, one reason that's relevant is because there were, there were people who had been saying, Oh, oh God, these things are going to be uh, more and more training on stuff created by AI because the internet is more populated by that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's bad because that's famously faulty. I mean, whether it's any more faulty than human generated content is a question I won't get into, but that was the claim. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so this, I guess to some extent addresses that concern. Anyway, um, all of these things suggest to me that we're moving pretty fast. I'll, I'll hold off on uh, reiterating why this worries me, which I've said before, mm -hmm. uh, until I get your take on whether you think I'm reading too much into all this. Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, let, let's, let's talk before, before I answer that question, let's talk a little bit more about, about the, the Mamba paper and the um, this, this spin paper. Um, so this, the spin paper, was, it was interesting. The, the, um, so that's the, the paper that... Uh, where they created the synthetic data. Um, the way that works is they have um, they have two networks where they have one network that's trying to create data and another network that's trying to distinguish the computer created data from human examples. Mm -hmm. And um, and then it's kind of a competition where uh, the better it gets at fooling the one model network, the better the other than the other network tries to the, get the closer at, it gets to passing the Turing test in a way, so far as the other machine can tell, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, so so I I think that is, I mean that's a cool result. The, the the key thing to note though is that it is it does need some human data to compare to, and so um, like one of the, the the really notable things about large language models right now is they're just really really inefficient in the way they use data. You need trillions and trillions of tokens to get close to human performance, and like a human being doesn't doesn't see anywhere close to a trillion tokens in their lifetime. And so to some extent, I think that these like synthetic data models are just like helping them get closer to human performance in like the amount of like knowledge they absorb from data. And that um, it, it's not obvious to me that that will allow them to kind of go past human performance. Like mm -hmm. um, it's just like, yeah, if they're only getting 1% of the knowledge from each data point, then you need a hundred data points to learn as much as a human would get from one data point. Um, so I, I think that's like incremental progress, but it doesn't suggest to me necessarily that there's like room for it to kind of soar beyond human abilities. Um, the thing with Mamba, and Mamba's a little bit of this, uh, in the case of Mamba, like, what, the main thing Mamba does is, like, large language models, because of their architecture, um, they're really bad at dealing with long context. Because the way the, the transformer works at a fundamental level is there's this attention mechanism where it's comparing words to other words, and it does this in a completely flat way. So if you have a thousand tokens, it compares every token to every other token. And if you think about how that scales up, the longer the sequence of tokens is, mm -hmm. it's it's more than linear. It's 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 a n squared um, function, and so it's just not possible to get to millions or tens of millions of tokens. 
And if you think about how like people in the real world, if you think about, you know, your relationship with something you've known for a long time, like you don't remember every word you've ever said to that person. Your brain has some sort of like summary that is sort of right. go as 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 you go along, you learn the important like kind of conceptual things about the person and relationship you have with them and and shared interests and so forth. Um and so a mamba is uh is a way of doing that where rather than um, remembering every word and doing these comparisons, it has a kind of internal state, internal memory, where it, it distills the important facts from the text it's seen so far right. and carries that context along with it, which then means that it can um, it can operate on much longer strings of texts. And so I see this as, yeah, as like an important, um, it seems to have good performance, and then it's a way of um, addressing one of the big shortcomings of the transformance. You could have something that has similar to transformer performance on short sequences, as short inputs, but then can deal with much longer inputs, which which is really important. I think if you think about the real world impact, like one of the big weaknesses of the transformer is, you know, if you think about an employee, if you imagine imagine you had an employee that every morning they came in, they didn't remember anything that happened the previous day or week or month, right? Like mm-hmm. that would not be, mm-hmm. for many tasks, that's not useful because a lot of the value that human workers bring is long context. They remember what happened last week, last month, last year. And so you can imagine a, a architecture like Mama being a step towards an AI that has that same property, where rather than having a, a totally new conversation every time, it remembers previous conversations you had, information about you, you know, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I think that's significant. So yeah, so to, to answer your question about like how fast are things are going, I, I guess my skepticism about this is less about... Um, the AI per se, because like definitely the reason I started my newsletter was that I saw the transformer and it exceeded my expectations. And, you know, for the last decade, um, there's been a series of things, the AlphaGo thing, the, um, there's a, a famous paper called Alex that about 10 years ago that kind of kicked off deep learning. Like AI has, has consistently met or exceeded my expectations in terms of how far, how quickly it goes. Um, I just think the, the bar for like transformational impact of the world as, as a whole is really, really high because um, because the world is just really big and complicated. And historically, um, you know, historically, there's just there's just uh, not that many technologies in history that have had that kind of that kind of impact. And um, so, yeah, I, th- I think as kind of um, new technologies go, I think it's certainly going to be above average. I think it'll have a big impact on a bunch of industries. But um, the, the level of panic people have about like everybody losing their job or everybody being killed or um, even like many, many industries being transformed. Um, I just think it's really hard to, to have a, a technology that has um, that has that big of an impact. And I think about like the, the Internet is kind of the, the model I think about here. Like people talk about the Internet, how it's changed everything. Um, and it certainly has changed some things, like certainly the media industry that you and I are both part of. It's had a huge impact. Um, but mm-hmm. if you think about people's just like day-to-day lives today versus 50 years ago, like our houses are basically the same. We drive cars that look pretty much the same as they did 50 years ago. Can um, I just can like, I interject something? Sure. Yeah. Our country is closer than ever in my lifetime to civil war. And a lot of people rightly, I think, attribute some of that to the dynamics of social media. Now, yes. I don't think we're close to civil war. Let me emphasize. But obviously, we have a deep polarization problem. Absolutely. And you're seeing this play out with play out on the international stage and intersect with and work in kind of unfortunate synergy, I would say, with domestic polarization. You see that with the Gaza thing. Um, And so I I think Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's I think that's huge. And I think AI in 
certain ways can be seen as a natural extension of social media, like social media on steroids, mm -hmm. potentially, yes. because, because, uh, you know, first of all, the default approach, if you're making AI is to optimize engagement, right? Mm -hmm. You want people yep. to keep using your product. Well, we saw what kind of algorithms that produced on social media and what kind of behavior they encouraged and how, what a warped view of what's actually going on in the world they've given to people in the various tribes who really spend a lot of time on social media and given them a darker and darker and darker view of the other tribe by, yeah. uh, by depicting actually atypical or not super typical behavior on the other side as typical, giving you the ideas typical and they're all crazy extremists and so on. I won't go on, but um, I, I do want to say before I put the ball back in your court, you know, uh, you alluded to the fact that, well, you know, Mamba doesn't necessarily get us to kind of super intelligence. And, and I would emphasize um, my, I, you know, my fears aren't mainly of the kind of Yudkowsky doomer kind where this super intelligence decides to squash humankind. I'm more worried about a bunch of different mundane effects uh, that add up to massive destabilization. And lead me to hope that things will go maybe not as fast as they're going. <laughs> but mm -hmm. that just so that. No, I, I, I definitely think one of the biggest impacts is likely to be changes to the media environment that then could lead to political, political destabilization. So, so, yeah, we completely agree about that. Um, and, you know, it's hard to it's hard to predict. And it's also a little hard, I think, to attribute. So, so definitely, I think, broadly speaking, um, changes in media are responsible for a lot of the media. The, the political changes we've seen, but like I think talk radio and cable news have been important to that, and that is, mm -hmm. in some sense, new technology. Um, but it's sure. not the internet per se. Um, and, and I think those things are cumulative. So certainly, social media is already starting to destabilize. I think AI will contribute to that. Um, but but like I, maybe that's why it's not super clear to me that like slowing down AI per se is going to make a huge difference because um, I think it's like adding, you know, at the margin if. if has an effect, but um, yeah, I, I, I just think it's like um, um, there, there's already enough current AI already has enough capability that it'll probably have some politically destabilizing effect, and um, and we already have social media, we already have you know just kind of more more media competition in general, um, and so yeah, that, that but yeah, I I agree with you that that's a big impact, but I think people yeah, so that's what I mean is like on the scale of like what's going to happen, there's the Yukowski view that's going to kill everybody. And then there's, um, you know, everybody's out of work. And then below that, there's maybe the political system will be destabilized. And then it's like, maybe somebody will make a billion dollars. I'm like, those are like orders of magnitude difference. And I'm just sort of in the middle. And I think people jump mm -hmm. all the way to the like, nobody has a job or everybody's dead. Um, and I, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle where it, it's, it's a big tech, it's a big deal for sure. It's just a question of kind of what, what bar are you setting for that? Yeah. I mean, the job thing is another concern of mine. I mean, first of all, there's more reason than, there has been in the past to think that maybe this time it won't just be a reshuffling of jobs. Obviously, technology's done that time and time again. There are no blacksmiths now, right? They had to find new mm -hmm. work, but the technology kept creating new forms of work. Uh, and I'm agnostic as to whether this time is different just because now we're automating the brain itself. Uh, but, um, but even if it turns out that, yeah, new jobs are available, uh, you know, 
you need, it takes time to adapt. It's, it's the same thing with, you know, in, in the realm of politics and, the very, and all of these, these effects I worry about. If you have enough time to adapt and think about them, society can adapt. But when a lot of things hit you super fast, it, it's hard to adapt. That, that's, that's kind of more my concern. And I mean, I'm leave aside for now where there's any realistic hope of slowing things down. I, I would say at a minimum, my mantra is, look, if there's some reasonable form of regulation that someone proposes and the main argument against it is it'll stifle innovation, I would say consider the possibility that's a feature, not a bug. That should not be an argument against the technology that shows so many signs of starting to move super fast and be transformative, both for good and for bad. Obviously, a lot of good, it can bring a ton of good stuff. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I would say the experience I've had in the last year is on the one hand, lots of people, lots and lots of people are saying what you're saying, which is AI is moving so fast, new things keep coming out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then something I've tried to do is just go around and ask people, like, what AI tools are you personally using in your work? Mm -hmm. And lots of people use ChatGPT for, I would say, kind of one-off thing. You know, I'm throwing a birthday party and I want to brainstorm, you know, mm -hmm. good activities. Or, um, you know, I'm traveling to Europe and I want to ask, you know, things like that. Where it's like, not like something you use every day, but, but like, that's the main thing I've gotten. But beyond with ChatGPT, like people use ChatGPT for kind of one-off things. But then if you think about other tools, programmers use... Um, you know, coding assistance. Um, but that's pretty much it. Like there's not, so far, there's really not any other killer app. And there's not, like, I, I think when people encountered Google or Amazon for the first time, it was like really clear what that was, especially Amazon. Like that's, it's a new like shopping thing. Like no, nobody was like kind of confused about that. Or um, like once you learned about it, you would start buying books regularly on Amazon. And so far I've seen very few things like that. Now that might just be, um, it's super early, you know, it's 1991 in the internet instead of 1995. But so far, it's like um, the, the, the technology, quote unquote, is, is advancing very quickly. But I have not been able to find a lot of impacts on the kind of real world. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it might just be delayed. But I think it's also like people underestimate. You know, there's a, the saying, um, you know, that people uh, overestimate how much they can do in a year and underestimate how much they can do in 10 years. Mm -hmm. I think there's a similar kind of dynamic here where I don't think 2024 is going to be like crazy. Right. In terms of like people losing jobs or, you know, stuff like yeah. that. But in 10 years, I think there could be big impacts. And I think it's hard for I think that's a, like a hard like amount of time for people to think about because it's long enough that like a lot of stuff can happen in the meantime. It's, it's like but it's not. But we're all good. Hopefully we're all still going to be alive in 10 years. So we do need to think about it. But it's like hard to it's hard to calibrate like how fast is, is fast for over that kind of type scale. Yeah. Well, what I think is at a minimum, it's not going to be the case that like three years from now, people are going, oh, remember that wave of AI hype? I, I, I think that's there's no way any yeah, sensible agree. person is yeah. not going to be seeing this three years from now as an extremely important development that takes uh, yeah, and, grappling and, with. And that's partly because, yeah, and I think that's probably because it's happening on so many different modalities, right? right. So you got the language models, you got the image models, you've got facial recognition, um, you've got... Uh, you know, deep fake like voice systems. And then you've got all sorts of like, you know, businessy things like for targeting ads and financial flows and stuff. So it's just, this is very clearly a very general purpose tool that right. um, even if the really ambitious stuff happens, that doesn't happen. Um, like facial recognition, for example, is like that. That is something actually people are using. And um, I think we'll have 
I think people are underestimating how big of an impact it will yeah. have. Um, so yeah, no, I totally agree. It's 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 significant. It's going to have a big impact over the next five or ten years. But it's not like next year we're all going to. And on get on the jobs front, like I have had a couple of conversations over the last month that have gotten my attention. One is there's a friend of mine who's dean of a law school, mm-hmm. and I asked him. I was talking, you know, this wasn't the main subject of the conversation, but I asked him like, what do you think of this? And he just said, oh, it's over, man. This is going to be an earthquake. He said, you know, these people billing $500 an hour. Guess again. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, somebody may be billing $500 an hour, but that's going to be because they're doing 10 times as much work as they used to be doing and using AI. And that means there's going to be a lot of lawyers that there's not going to be enough work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other conversation is somebody he's in the, the grant proposal writing business. Not a big part of the industry, but it just... I asked him, like, so have you fooled around with AI? He said, oh, God, it's completely essential. I, he says, I mean, I just, you know, I say, and it isn't just like the writing. It kind of comes up with a plan. And in a certain sense, you know, grant proposal writing is perfect for this because half of the content of the thing everyone knows is just bullshit whose job is just to fill space on the page, right? And just like, and the people, half the times, the grants are actually wired anyway. You know you're going to give it to the person. or not. Anyway, so I can see why, you know, it doesn't have to be finely, as finely crafted as some forms of writing. And again, this is just a very small example. But obviously, what this means is he can do more work uh, in an hour. Productivity grows. And unless... For some reason, I don't anticipate the number of grants awarded explodes, you know, <laughs> and so there's enough work to, uh, you know, to compensate for this. That's going to mean that some people making a living at this are going to have to find another another line yeah, of work. I don't think that's actually right, though. So actually, I think these are both good examples. So with lawyers, like being a lawyer is an adversarial process. So if the plaintiff's lawyer is 10 times more productive and can look at 10 times more documents and think about 10 times more precedents, et cetera, et cetera, um, and, you, and the defense doesn't change anything, then the plaintiffs are going to win more cases. But like the defense can also do that. And so um, I think you've got a world where like the lawyers are 10 times more productive, but um, that just means that people do 10 times as much work to kind of get to a similar outcome. And similarly with grant making, like it's... it's um, you know, maybe that what's required to get a grant is going to be 10 times more complex. I mean, you think about, I mean, this is why I think the internet's a good example. Like you think about, oh God, how did anybody like get anything done without email? Um, And the answer was people sent fewer messages and there was like less communication that happened. And when the internet was invented, like communication became more efficient, but as a part, as a result, people communicated more. And now we spend two hours Mm -hmm. reading through emails that wouldn't have existed 20 years ago. So you have to think about both the supply and the demand side. Like AI makes it more efficient to do things but then often the result is like more things happen because, you know, people want the things. And so they like the demand for the things go up. And it's like, I think it's like hard to make a general statement. Like there are going to be some industries where you supply more stuff and people only want so much stuff. And so then you have fewer workers. But there's going to be other cases where people supply more stuff and people really want the stuff. And so they actually consume a lot more. And like in the early phases of a lot of industries, like actually total employment goes up. If you, I mean, if you go way back to like the very first case of an automation, like with the, the, um, with textiles, like the early decades of the textile industry, employment grew and grew and grew because even though like cl- clothing was getting cheaper, like people wanted a lot more clothing, and so total output increased. Um, so yeah, so I, I yeah, I, I think it's I think it's complicated, and I think that absolutely people are going to integrate AI into their workflows, and that will make them more productive in certain things. 
And in some industries, that will mean some job losses. In other industries, I think um, it could easily be job gains because um, be, because the cost of stuff goes down. This is also, I, I did a piece about the translation industry. This is what you see. Um, the translation industry has, you know, for like, um, you know, natural language from like English to Spanish or whatever, it's mm-hmm. kind of bifurcated. There's a high-end market of people doing translations that the machines aren't um, sophisticated enough for things like um, legal and medical, where the stakes are very high and there's like technical mm-hmm. jargon as they want to make sure it's case. But then there's a low end where basically the job is the machine does a rough translation and then a human looks through it for any errors. And what's happened is like people are translating a lot more stuff than they used to because there's lots right. and lots of material out there that people would like to translate they couldn't afford to. And um, so employment has been kind of, I think roughly kind of breaking even, right? It's like um, the, the what you can make per word at the kind of mass market one is going down, but people can do more. And so it kind of yeah. um, ends up being a wash. I mean, I'm not sure I buy all this. The translation thing is, is an interesting example because you it is definitely a case where you're going to wind up with just tons more translation, just like, you know, tourists in Europe with simultaneous translation going into their ears mm-hmm. can just basically talk to people. That's going to be amazing. And who knows, maybe that'll have a good effect uh, on the world. There is this kind of old and seemingly discredited worldview that one big source of international tension is that people <laughs> speak different languages. I don't really think that's a big part of the problem, but maybe it'll mm-hmm. it'll finally get its day in, in court um, since, uh, you know, not not everyone had time to learn Esperanto, which was the previous approach to getting everyone to speak to be able to understand each other. Speaking of days in court, though, uh, I, I, I want to push back on that example of this not ultimately reducing the demand for lawyers. And maybe this is a good segue to the New York Times lawsuit, because I would say, look. I doubt that you could make the New York Times lawsuit stronger, much stronger, right? I doubt they overlooked major arguments that you could make. In fact, it seems to me some of their arguments are already a little strained as it is. Um, And that seems to be your premise, right? That, well, you'll still need as many lawyers. It's just that the, uh, the briefs, the legal briefs will be a lot stronger, consider a lot more things. I mean... Uh, first of all, a lot of these things can't just get longer. Same with grant proposals. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and so I don't know. Will it? What, what, well, so, so like a concrete example with lawyers, a lot of the, what lawyers do is document review. If you have a big lawsuit between two companies, mm-hmm. you say like, give me every email that all of your executives have, um, sent for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then you have people that code through them for examples of making whatever point you want. And right now, there's like a limit. I mean, and, and, and like one of the fights is but, like how but much. But that's surely material. automatable, right? Well, it's it's that's it's, classic GPT. Sure, no, but that's what I'm saying is right now, lawyers can only have time to look at in a typical lawsuit. Can only have time. There's a oh, limit to how much they can look at. And so now you can look at ten or a hundred times as much, and the AI does ninety percent of the work and produces here's the like five hundred most promising emails. And so the lawyer is able to effectively look at 100 times more material with the same amount of time. And so then it has like seven examples of the of the executive saying something incriminating instead of just one example. Yeah, but the person um, who was combing through the emails is still out of work. This kind well, no, of entry level, just out of law school, whatever they call those people. Uh, right. You know. so, so so the um, yeah. So the, I mean, there's a question of like, is it is it is the AI partially automating or wholly automating? The process yeah and so yeah i mean if, if you have an ai that 
takes emails as an input and outputs a brief, then yes, the lawyer is out of work. Um, but I think that um, what you're more likely to see is software tools that comb through the emails and write a draft, like, like, like a draft brief that then it, that the client then wants a human being to look over. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's like a short-term versus long-term question here. Like over the next five to 10 years, I'm pretty confident like that's what's going to happen. Like there's not going to be that, partly just for, for like um, kind of regulatory reasons, like you need a license to do certain things. Like in the next five to 10 years, what I think you're going to have to see is like lawyers get more productive and therefore the build the, the the amount of like legal work that happens goes up now yeah i can, can in 30 years you know are lawyers going well, to this could be a libertarian's nightmare Tim. i have bad news <laughs> for you right just no, ton, tons of more court activity right lawsuits frivolous lawsuits stymieing the magic of capitalism this yeah, is a so, problem you should yeah, get so worked I'm, up about this <laughs> yeah more motion so yeah, so I'm, I'm not like going to make like a strong prediction that like lawyers are definitely not going to be thrown out of work, but I'm just saying it's like, it's complicated, right? Because there are some aspects that are automatable and some that are not. And if you automate the automatable parts, there might be other parts of the job that um, then become, they're, they're more in demand for them because they're complementary to the automated parts. Um, and I think that's what you see in most, when, when most of these industries, when I look at them closely, I mean, you see the thing with, with like self-driving cars, which I've written a fair amount about. There's no more drivers. But you still need people to repair the cars, to clean the cars, to handle customer service calls. And and so, like, in the long run, can all that stuff be automated? I don't know, maybe. But, like, uh, customer um, service calls are a good candidate. Very good candidate. And I'll tell you, yeah, um, a lot of them will be easier to understand. I, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, uh I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, maybe a anyway, should... I, I think this is like a 10 to 20 year thing as opposed to a you know, three to five year thing. Um, I don't have a strong position on what's going to happen in 20 years, but I think it's, I think people underestimate how long it takes to kind of change industries and business models. And, and well, you know, and I would actually say, I mean, it is still kind of New Year's. I might as well make a prediction. I think by the mm -hmm. end of 2024, take an example like, uh, well, what's going to happen when the people who have gotten wrapped up in social media get wrapped up in an actual buy, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is their source of ideological wisdom or personal counseling and things can go badly wrong. I predict that by the end of 2024, we will have case studies and things having gone badly wrong and maybe they'll be overblown and unrepresentative and it's actually only happening to a hundred people and we've read about 70 of them in the newspapers, mm. who knows? But I think you you will see some of this stuff will, will begin to assume concrete form. That that sounds totally plausible. Yeah. So um, maybe we should. Uh, now we're not that far from the the magic moment when the paywall descends, uh, and people uh, who want to listen to the rest of this, which we both encourage them to do, I think, uh, need to become paid subscribers either to the Non-Zero newsletter or to the Understanding AI newsletter. Um, but uh, let's. Uh, is it? What do you want to, before we get there, well, let me say one quick thing on the anti-acceleration front, and I'll turn this over to you. Um, I should note that one thing that's happened since we last talked, uh, Google had this big rollout that was something of a fizzle. Uh, you know, it was the long-awaited Gemini. Is this going to be as good as uh, GPT-4 better? 
We don't actually know for sure because there's a version of Gemini, I think it's called Ultra, that isn't released yet. But in general, people were not blown away. Part of the problem is that Google's marketing people made the very big mistake of releasing a, a video that was just flat out misleading about what it could and couldn't do. That didn't help. But anyway, I would say, and I think you've kind of raised this question like, uh, Maybe you haven't. Maybe Nathan LeBenz has on the aforementioned podcast, or maybe both of you have. But, but like, um, is you know, is is uh, GPT four point maybe a kind of uh, not quite an outer bound? But are, are we getting there? And of course, he might say it may not matter because if so, it's just an outer bound for the transformer model, and now something else is on the horizon. But um, mm -hmm. yeah. There's that possibility. Uh, anyways, if you want to say something about any of that, fine. And also anything you want to quickly say about the, the New York Times copyright lawsuit, which I, I think we'll, we'll get into in more depth uh, on the other side of the paywall. You, you wrote about it in your newsletter, as you said. Sure. Yeah. So, um, no, I, 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 I agree with everything you said about Gemini. I mean, Google has some of the best researchers in the world. They have massive amounts of compute. And Gemini was supposed to be their kind of GPT-4 killer. And it's like a little better in the version that they haven't released yet because they're still working on it. Um, mm -hmm. And what they say is they're still doing the kind of safety um, stuff. And they're supposed to, I guess, like early 2024, they're supposed to release it. Um, but yeah, that that provides uh, like not the definitive evidence, but one data point that suggests that the transformer model might be running out of steam. But yeah, absolutely. I think that um, things like this Mamba model or maybe something else that people will invent in the next few months um, could easily replace it. So I'm not like predicting the end of large language models, but I think it's very possible that the transformer is uh, not at the peak, but like we'll see kind of the, the flat part of the S-curve in the, the next mm -hmm. year or two. Because the idea had been more scale, all you know, more parameters, the models get bigger and more powerful, and the, the models will just get more amazing. Uh, the other view is actually, no, you need a qualitative improvement in the technology, and, and that may turn out to be the truth. Um, any short takeaway you want to say about the New York Times uh, copyright lawsuit before we explore that in more depth? Um, no, we can we can do that. We can do that in over time. Okay. Um, well, then why don't we uh, make that transition? Um, I guess we're um, we're probably not even halfway through this conversation, but uh, obviously we encourage people to uh, sign up for our newsletters. For starters, even if you don't want to become a paid subscriber, but we, we certainly, I, I think you will join me in, in, uh, in encouraging people to become paid subscribers to one of our As, Absolutely. Yeah. To get the, the best content, you need to be a paid subscriber. And to know that you're supporting a, a worthwhile cause, because one of us is going to turn out to be right. <laughs> you know, which reminds me, maybe the way, if people want to be sure they're supporting a good cause, they should actually become paid subscribers to both newsletters, because one of us is going to turn out to be right about AI, right? I, yeah, that that sounds that right. makes total that makes total sense. Okay, with that said, thanks everybody who's listened so far. Whether you're going to keep listening or not, uh, and with that, we move into overtime.